Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you log on today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. This is Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 80. How is everyone? I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, we are on the crest of this new show launch, the Sofa Notes. I hope you have already subscribed. And if not, do pop over to either Starship Sofa, follow the links there, or just go to sofanotes.com. We have that name as well now. Give you a little heads up what's happening in today's show. We have the editorial by my good self, which is, guess what, all to do with the sofa notes. Poetry comes from Mike Allen and Charles Saplick. First fact article of the day is by Jim Campanella. Main fiction tonight comes from James Lovegrove, UK science fiction fantasy writer. And last, but by no means least, Mr Matthew Sanborn-Smith with his fiction crawler. So that is today's show. I hope you will join me. So jumping straight in with the editorial. And yes, basically it is. It's just a big one, big meaty plug for you to go over and sign up to the Sofa Notes. It is just building up to be a great show. It, fingers crossed it will be, but getting loads of guests kind of all lined up there and it just seems like hopefully it's going to be a really good excuse for all of us to just submerse ourselves in science fiction, what we're like, do you know what I mean? And hopefully you'll see, you'll, you'll go over there and you'll subscribe to it. First off, the show is getting recorded on this Thursday coming. Guests lined up for that show are Matthew Sanborn-Smith, we also have Jeremiah Talbot, executive editor over there at Escape Pod. So look out for show number one of the Sofa Notes. Everything's now set up and hopefully fine-tuned. Just go to iTunes, type in Sofa Notes, or you'll find us there. Like I say, come over to the website, starshipsofa.com. You'll see links to there. You'll go to the site from there. Or just type in Google Sofa Notes. It will bring you up. Click on and subscribe. And the idea is, like, like I've said this before, record it hopefully on a you know a Thursday or Friday, release it on the Saturday. So it's got some news topics in of what's happened that week, you know. And as, as well as that, just discussing things amongst ourselves, you know, what we bring to the table in SF, you know. So hopefully it will be a, a fine and grand show and you will, will you know, sign up and sign up. That sounds a really crude word, but hopefully you will kind of, Subscribe to the show and, you know, at least check it out and tell other people about it. That would be fantastic. Let us dip our toes into some poetry. Today's poetry comes by Mike Allen. Mike Allen, as you know, did the button bin for the Nebula Awards. And also it's written by Charles Saplack. 
Charles Saplak lives in Roanoke, Virginia with his family. It is narrated today by Kate Baker. Kate Baker, as you know, has narrated some fine stuff. Ted Kuzmaska comes to mind. Kate is also responsible for the styling of the new Starship Sofa website. And Kate has been given yes, even more responsibilities on the Starship Sofa. Now Kate is production manager for Starship Sofa, basically <laughs> helping me out, try to correlate everything together with lining up guests for the new Sofa Note show. So many guests, different time zones and different things, and that was just like way too much responsibility for a young lad like me. So... <laughs> in my grand tradition, I have just handed it over to Kate. Now Kate is organising it. I'm just left now as the, the pampered star that gets his, the sweat wiped off his brow and, right, you're on, go! <laughs> so yes, look out for Kate if, in that respect as well. So Kate, thank you so much. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delight is very proud to present. Epics in Exile, a fantasy trilogy by Charles Saplack and Mike Allen as read by Kate Baker. 1. Reflections on a Far Shore I, Quetzal, Claw of Jacoon, walk this far shore alone. Baleful sun fires the horizon of the quiet sea. One moon, alone, silvers the jungle at my back. Starfarer no more, here will I go insane. The exile pod floats beside me, distortion waves shimmering off the gravity shifter. It can take me anywhere, but would shatter were I to challenge this sky. It cannot be reprogrammed. Disruptor, exoskeleton, metabolic batteries, resonator. I have enough tools to name myself king of this forsaken dustbeck of a world. A serpent glides to the slime at my feet, jeweled back, sparkling in moonlight. I see myself three thousand years hence, a belly crawler naked and unthinking, a taster of mud. I finger my disruptor. Shall I kill this serpent, punish it for mocking me? Shall I teach it who is king? A shorebird circles the surf, hunting silhouetted on the smooth blue moon. Should I kill all? I could cleanse this world were I so inclined, but why should any be allowed to die before I do? The elders locked within my code a new template. Eggs, sperm, rebirthing rhythm. I am now a self-replicator like a fungus. This they called mercy. What shade the dracoon sky tonight? What pattern the five moons? What tale throbs through the dream song now that Quetzal, lone voice of discord, has been silenced? Angry, I shed the exoskeleton, drop it into the mud. Why wear another prison? Before two steps, I collapse to my hands and knees. Crawl in circles, humiliated, my punishment complete. A crude chorus trips my resonator. One could hardly call these minds at all. I strain to peer into the jungle. Tribes of mangy apes. No, not so pure as apes. Another thing. Human. I reach for the disruptor to reduce them, all to sand, but no. 
Instead, I show them a little trick I've learned, a quirk of this oxygen-rich world. I breathe fire. Scurrying, they leave a ghost in my resonator, a serpent god, shedding skin, breathing fire. Laughing, I place my exoskeleton and disruptor in the pod, send them over the sea to shatter, fire announcing a new legend, lord, and exile. Earth's sole dragon, I set forth. My tiny universe beckons. Two, wet born in winter. I ache for the sun. I will not see the spring. Every century or so I've learned winter smashes these mountains and snow falls for weeks. This is such a storm. The cave mouth has iced over. I'm so still and cold. The ice could be within my bones. I groan and moist, warm breath creates a spiral aperture in the ice disc closing me in. A crystalline iris which shifts and swirls. Through this I peer, hoping to glimpse a starry sky beyond this blizzard. Is it right to long for home after so many centuries? Is it good to ache for my bright, warm life on the home world so many galaxies away? There is too much time to think in winter, and this winter is different. Another is here. Time heavy as miles of ice, though I'm chilled, another is warm, swaddled in my beating heart, shifting and wriggling in my clean blood. When I was my mother, did I resent myself so? Excruciating destroyer, ignorant, selfish. I writhe around my cave, bleeding and bellowing. My cries shatter ice, hurl avalanches through chasms. Do grannies in the village below soothe babies with whispers of old Seng Chen, whose cries echo around the moon? There is no time to think. One has awakened. I don't know that a claw is slicing through my chest until I look down and see it. Paralyzed, I watch my body split, my blood pool on the cave floor. A jeweled serpent, fifteen feet long, splashes free. Its scales harden as it licks my blood from the floor. Panting, I wish to scream, but hold my breath for fear I'd burn the exquisite murderer. It finds my open chest, gnaws there, moves to my throat. I stare at the cave mouth, unfeeling and fancy distant stars. Soon it eats through my eye. It gnaws through the socket, and for only a moment the pain is fabulous. Then it is up upon my brain. Darkness and sleep till I awaken, eating this blood-gray bread. I look to the cave mouth and wonder, what are stars? I return to the strange feast, this mountain of icy flesh. I breathe fire slink between blackened bones like a cage of the past. Days and nights pass. I know, I remember. Someday the ice will break and I will see the spring. Three. Thoughts Before the Slayer
Marvelous and tiny yet another approaches. Wasn't it just a decade ago when the last ventured here? Or was it a century? These things blur together. Regardless, another approaches, his heart throbbing, daunting my ancient ears. Hand-hammered armor clanking and creaking, brittle iron, sword held aloft, resonating in the wind. And me? Too weary to tell him of my legends. Memories, really. Learned not at a granny's knee, but gnawed from the inside of my dead mother's skull when I was wet-born as she had gnawed them from her mother's, and so on. Seventy times on this earth, beneath the sun. He stops, kneels, a prayer to whisper his pious words whipped away by the wind. I slide along the rock ledge before my cave, wish for more sun, how I've always loved this sun. Should I interrupt his prayer to talk about this sun? Or talk of cool blue suns I remember? Or great red suns, which filled strange skies, cast shadows on castles which were old when his race was young? He continues to pray this creature come to kill me. My teeth hurt. I cannot bear the thought of eating. Some days I can't breathe fire, and my own smoke chokes me. My heart hisses within my chest, and worst... There are no eggs. I welcome him this tiny night, but also want to tell of my line how 1,763 years ago my first arrived, sent his starship to the ocean floor. How I've watched since then, seen these tiny unscaled ones stand up from the ape, construct cathedrals. How when I first saw a war I could have scoured this earth clean, set fire to the sky. How when I first heard a lullaby cooed in a cold cave, I knew this race would prevail. His prayers are done. What name has God? Or should I ask his name? St. George? Glooskap? Sigurd? Or ask which of a thousand names he calls me? Nidog? Draconis? Hydra? He arises, steps forward, sorn-drawn fear and courage in his eyes. I roll over in the warm sun on this world grown too small for legends. He targets my breast, pale and penetrable, while I wonder what will be said when his descendants meet my ancestors out among the stars. Mike, Charles, thank you so much. Do spread this word about, you know, please, by all means, share their work about, but don't go changing it, and certainly don't go making any money off it. Thank you, Charles, thank you, Mike, and Kate, thank you so much. A fantastic narration. And coming up on, one of the guests for Sophie Norton in the not-too-distant future is J.J. Campanella. And we hear a lot, you know, J.J. does so much work for the Starship Sofa, doing these audio narrations doing the fact articles every month, you know, and he's got a young family there, and it's just like, I keep asking him for more and more stuff, and Jim, you know what I mean, what can I say, but it'll be nice to, like, just get Jim on, you know, to kind of free flow, and just to hear his ideas, and to chat about things in science fiction, you know, not from a kind, not say, like, a scripted dialogue, it's more just Jim himself, and that I'm really looking for, and that's what I'm looking forward to, is me just talking with everyone who are kind of 
helps put together the show and other people, you know, in the kind of industry, just chatting to them as well. So look out for Jim Caminella. But until then, Jim, Science News, what has been happening? Greetings and salutations. Welcome to this evening's April 2009 edition of Science News Update. I'm your host, Jim Campanella. This month, I'll be delving into several recent science news stories having to do with food and food supplements. I figured, since I had disrupted everyone's sleep for the last two months, why not mess with their diets as well? I'm kidding, really. Just kidding. Seriously. As a parent, I worry about what my kids eat and the food supply. Here in the U.S., over the last several months, we've had a series of scares with contaminated foods. The two latest were peanuts a couple of months ago and pistachio nuts in the last couple of weeks. And just to put our minds at ease, we were told by the Food and Drug Administration here in the States that the pistachios have probably been contaminated for the last couple of years. Yippee. Now I know where my stomach cramps came from last month after some pistachio ice cream. Blah. Anyway, we are all very concerned about what we eat and whether it is good for us and our children or not. And several stories about those very subjects brought themselves to my attention in the last couple of weeks. I hate being a purveyor of doom and gloom, but unfortunately it simply turns out that way sometimes. And truthfully, I'm just as often surprised by some of this news as I'm sure that you are. Let's start with the topic of milk, a subject that is near and dear to my heart. I love milk and yogurt, and cheese, and ice cream, and just about any dairy product that you can name. Even the weird ones like kefir and lassi. I'm happy that I am not lactose intolerant, because that would bring on serious sadness in my life. My young daughter and loving wife are also milk addicts, and I suspect that my 11-month-old, who will start drinking milk in a month or so, will also fall into that category. Milk is good for you, if you are not lactose intolerant, that is. That is a given. It has lots of vitamins and proteins and calcium. It is generally healthy. My pistachio ice cream carton, black, even had a label on it that said that dairy products in weekly moderate quantities will help you to fend off bone loss in old age. Since I do worry about my own health and that of my family, I generally just buy organic milk. That is pretty much the only organic product that I do buy, by the way. I don't wish to expose my kids to undue amounts of antibiotics or hormones found in most grocery store milk. Well, you can imagine my horror when I read a science article by Timothy Veenstra and his associates from the National Cancer Institute in the Journal of Chromatography that suggested that milk was really potentially quite dangerous. Veenstra's group examined the endogenous hormones that are present in grocery store milk. Endogenous in this case means the hormones that are made by the cow herself. Essentially, they found an ungodly cocktail of steroid hormones that could cause serious problems for heavy milk drinkers. Typically, steroid hormones are produced in the body for use in the body. They tell genes when to turn on and off, but externally derived hormones add noise to the system. This is why hormones from your milk are such a bad thing. The scientists did the work originally to determine the levels of bovine estrogens that are present in milk. Estrogens are female mammalian hormones. The problem with estrogens is that they can fuel the growth of many tumors, even the prostate. And estrogen can do this at amazingly tiny concentrations. Identifying how estrogen's prevalence varies by milk type and what chemical form the hormones occur required a new assay. And this is what the NCI scientists actually describe in their article. Using their new chromatographic technique, 
Veenstra and company showed a whole range of bovine estrogens in milk. Whole milk contained the smallest quantity of these estrogens, while skim milk and buttermilk contained the most. In all of these milks, most of the estrogen had undergone a minor chemical modification, rendering it less directly bioavailable and less hormonally active. But that doesn't mean that it is inert and inactive, just less active and less available. These cow estrogens can be converted back to their more effective parent compounds. What's more, Veenstra notes, studies by others have shown that relative to free bioavailable estrogens, these so-called conjugated ones take longer to get from the gut into the blood, but they're still there. Overall, skim milk had the smallest quantities of free estrogens, but just to complicate things, the hormone type that dominated skim milk's profile, 2-hydroxyesterone, is one of the most reactive and potentially risky of all metabolites. By the way, this is important. This may not have been clear, but we are talking about the hormones produced by the cow itself. It has nothing to do with humans or anything that humans do. That means that even organic milk would have these hormones. I was concerned enough about this story that I actually tried to contact Timothy Veenstra by email with some questions of clarification on his findings. However, as of the time of this recording, Veenstra still has not responded to me. I don't know why. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's on tour of talk shows. Maybe he's just busy. Or perhaps he just thinks I'm a parochial dolt not worth responding to. Your guess is as good as mine. One of the most potentially frightening aspects of the milk story is its impact on something called insulin-like growth factor 1. This is a protein which stimulates certain types of cell growth. Many studies have linked high levels of IGF-1 with increased cancer risk. And, ta-da, not only is milk a rich source of this growth factor, but people who drink milk also end up with even more of it in their blood. As I have said on this program so many times, nothing in science is ever simple, and the IGF and milk story is anything but simple. Ordinarily, IGF-1 production is turned on when human growth hormone hits certain tissues. Then, it becomes the growth hormone's agent to locally trigger cell growth. Estrogen cannot trigger cell growth without IGF-1 being present, and if it is present, estrogen can amplify the cell-proliferating effects seen with IGF. Veenstra and his team showed that this was possible both in breast tissue and in prostate tissue. In other words, with both IGF and estrogen present in high quantities, you can get a triggering of cellular hypergrowth. This is obviously bad in terms of breast and prostate cancer. You don't want cell growth in those places to be overstimulated. But here's the real kicker from Veenstra. Quote, There's a lot of interpersonal variability in our natural production of IGF. And even though we are sure that drinking milk will increase your IGF level, milk's contribution will still account for a trivial part of the variation between people, unquote. That means that in the end, genetics trumps milk intake. Wahoo for us milk drinkers. Veenstra points out that people who naturally rank in the top quarter in terms of IGF production and drink no milk will still have higher IGF levels, than somebody at the other end of the bell curve who drinks a quart a day. Given this confusing mishmash, what are you supposed to do if you love milk? It's not as if you can go off and have a test done for your IGF levels, just because you love milk at least. 
Well, here is a quote from the mysterious unreachable Veenstra. Quote, In the absence of definitive safety data or the presence of an adverse effect which may be small, you have to decide, is there anything good about milk? Unquote. He goes on to say that other than developing children and malnourished adults, people probably don't need milk. He finishes with, quote, I would never say anything stronger than that, unquote. Now that I've destroyed all your interest in milk, let me tell you about a story that involves birds and has nothing to do with milk. However, it does involve omega-3 fatty acids. You may remember that omega-3s are one of those types of fish oils that you are always told are good for you. Well, lots of human studies have shown that they are good for you, and now a study of quails suggests other ways that those fishy fats may help humans as well. In the March 2009 issue of the Journal of Experimental Biology, Jean-Michel Weber from the University of Ottawa examines the effect that diets high in omega-3s have on quail. Weber originally became interested in omega-3s effect when he saw so many migrating birds chowing down on mud shrimps as they pass through Canada on their migrations. Mud shrimps have some of the highest levels of healthy fatty acids of any organisms on the earth. In humans, omega-3s reduce the risk of coronary heart disease and alleviate depression. But Weber thought they might have other physiological effects on birds. Weber had watched sandpipers on their migrations eating shrimp for years. And he hypothesized that the intake of the shrimp gave the sandpipers lots of fatty acids needed to increase their aerobic capacity. In short, eating shrimp was like endurance training. Weber wanted to determine if it was possible that the sandpipers could build up their endurance by simply eating. All the evidence seemed to suggest that, but Weber needed to test the miraculous fatty acids effect on less athletic birds. He chose the dumpy bobwhite quail. His question became, could he boost the couch potato quail's endurance by simply feeding them omega-3 fatty acids? If he could do that, then he might convince himself that the sandpipers were eating the shrimp for exactly that reason. Weber fed three groups of sedentary quails an omega-3 diet of, get this, N3-icosapentanoic acid and N3-docosahexanoic acid, or a 50-50 mixture of the two oils for six weeks. Then he checked the quail's pectoral muscles to see if their capacity to consume oxygen to produce energy had improved. Measuring the activity levels of four oxidative enzymes, he found that the enzyme's activity levels had increased by between 58 to 90% of levels normally only seen in migrating birds. Mind you, this is in birds who were just sitting and eating. Weber says that he was astonished by the increase. Even top human endurance athletes only improved their oxidative enzyme activity by 38 to 76% after seven or eight weeks of hard endurance training. But the quails did even better without getting off their fat little birdie bottoms. They had got fit by simply ingesting the omega-3 fatty oils. Weber further tried to find out why this happened. He did a series of experiments to determine how the fatty acids were able to change the bird physiology to pump them up without lifting a finger. But he couldn't. He examined the birds for changes in mitochondria. That's the organelle that powers the cell and changes in oxidation enzyme levels. Those are the enzymes that are used in respiration to help make and use energy. And the weird thing is that he could not find evidence of changes in either of those places in the formerly fat quails. 
Weber's big conclusion is that he knows that it is a real effect and that he can document it, but he has yet to be able to come up with a mechanism for it. Does this birdie effect have anything to do with humans? Probably not. Avian physiology is different from mammalian physiology. We are just different enough on the evolutionary tree so that we are not quite affected in the same way by the same nutrients. It is possible that omega-3s can increase endurance in humans, but first, no one has ever tested for that. And second, omega-3s have been heavily tested for years and no one has ever reported such an observation. You would think that sedentary people, like me, all over the world who regularly take omega-3 supplements in their diets might have noted an increase in their stamina, if it was indeed the case, but I don't believe that it is, and I don't believe anybody has ever reported that. Well, onwards and upwards to our next story. I think any Brits in our audience, including you, Tony, may find this next story kind of interesting. I don't know if black tea consumption has changed much in the last 20 years in Great Britain, but I do know that it was among the world's top levels for classic black tea drinking for decades. An interesting question that has arisen of late is whether black tea is just as good for you as the highly touted green tea may be. And a recent study from Dr. Verena Stangl's laboratory of the University of Berlin in the journal Basic Research in Cardiology examines that exact question. Is black tea as good for your heart as green tea? First, what is the difference between green tea and black tea? Well, first of all, there are four major types of tea most commonly found in the market. Black tea, oolong, green, and white. Despite the fact that they sound like they are from different sources, all of these teas can be made from the same bushes. They are simply processed differently. The exception is white tea, which is made from the same bush but grown differently. The tea's type is determined by processing, as I said. Tea leaves soon begin to wilt and oxidize if they're not dried quickly after picking. The leaves turn progressively darker as the chlorophyll in the leaves breaks down and tannins are released. This process of allowing the leaves to darken as they dry is called enzymatic oxidation. The next step in the processing is to stop the oxidation process at a predetermined stage by heating, which deactivates the enzymes responsible. With black tea, this is done simultaneously while drying. Black tea is wilted, sometimes crushed, and fully oxidized, which gives it its black color. Green tea, on the other hand, is allowed to wilt, but it is not allowed to go through the oxidation process during drying, and those enzymes are deactivated very early. The upshot is that chemically, black and green tea do differ because of these contrasts in processing. For thousands of years in Asia, consumption of green tea has been purported to have major medical benefits. And today, there is strong evidence suggesting regular green tea drinkers may have a lower chance of heart disease and developing certain types of cancer. So is black tea just as good as green tea at lowering your chances of heart disease? Stangle's group was interested in black tea because there had been so many studies showing how beneficial green tea was in long-term human studies. Although there is evidence for this with black tea, similar epidemiological studies had never been very successful. Since 75% of the tea actually consumed worldwide is black tea, they decided this was an important question to re-examine. Stangle's group compared the effects of green and black tea on nitric oxide, NO, production and vasodilation and elucidated the tea compounds involved. First, what is nitric oxide? Well, in 1998, 
the Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded to Robert Fugat, Louis Ignaro, and Farid Murad. This was for their discovery that NO is a major signaling molecule of the circulatory system. They found that nitric oxide is a short-lived gas that acts as a signaling molecule. NO is the first animal gaseous hormone that we've known about. Gas hormones have been known for, for years in plants. The NO is able to relax muscle cells exposed to it, especially cardiac cells. It's actually the basis of the activity of the drug nitroglycerin in relaxing heart muscles. The nitro actually gets converted to NO, which then does the relaxation. So Stangle's group used highly fermented black tea and determined concentrations of individual tea compounds in both green and black tea of the same type. This was a SOM tea. The major result is that both teas stimulated nitric oxide synthetase activity as well as vasorelaxation in aortas. This result surprised the researchers. They had expected that the black tea would not have the same effect because it lacked an important chemical the green tea possesses. These are chemicals called catechins. These catechins are compounds in green tea that directly stimulate NO production. Black tea doesn't have them, and yet it was still able to stimulate NO production. And again, just to add a layer of complexity here, in green tea, the catechin compounds are converted to two other compounds called theoflavins and theorubigins. These are actually what stimulates the NO. It turns out that black tea already has theoflamins present without any conversion, and these showed an even higher potency in NO production and vasorelaxation than green tea did. The black tea also already contained theorubigins, which seemed to be highly efficient stimulators of vasodilation and, again, NO production all by themselves. So what is the learning moment here? Well, it seems to be that black tea is equally potent as green tea in promoting beneficial endothelial effects. The theoflavins and the theorubigins predominantly found in black tea counterbalance the lack of catechins there. This seems to suggest that despite claims of green tea being so mystical and fantastical and healthful beyond anything drunk in the West, black tea consumption is probably just as good at preventing cardiovascular diseases. It may not be quite as fashionable to drink black tea, but it seems to have just as many benefits. So the black tea preferences of Great Britain have been vindicated. From a personal standpoint, I don't have to feel guilty about choosing Earl Grey or Irish breakfast tea over matcha green tea anymore. That's all for me. Thanks for listening. As always, take care, and I hope I have inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, thank Jim. What can I say? Thank you so much. Yes, it honestly it is appreciated. You know it is. So thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to having a chat with you on the sofa notes. So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over thirty-five thousand titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. So log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. Now, what free audiobook would you get? Well, I've been kind of thinking about this for a, a while or two, and the kind of recommendation this week is, it's because it's been in the news quite a lot, Ridley Scott is going to direct, I think Ridley Scott's going to direct The Forever War, 
Joe Haldeman's story, and it's going to be in. Have I've heard about this as well, and no doubt we might talk about this on the sofa notes. You know, it's going to be in three D as well. So what better way to get prepared for that? You know, and fingers crossed he doesn't mess it up. Do you know what I mean? Because that is, you know, it's that one book there, and that audio is on the pinnacle of my science fiction list. You know, it's like I've got a joint top with that that book and. Flowers for Algernon, you know, they're them two books there that kind of on my number one list. So, you know, hopefully that film will come off and it'll, it'll be great. But recommendation for the Audible is The Forever War. You know, it is just a great narration. Do you know what I mean? It's just fantastic. And I can even picture when I remember listening to it, where I was walking along coastlines and things like that. So please, you know, if you're going to pick one book, pick The Forever War. It is a fantastic story. My recommendation from audible.com. So time for the main fiction, and it comes from James Lovegrove. Born in 1965, a British writer of speculative fiction. His first novel was The Hope, published by Macmillan in 1990. He was shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke Award in 1998 for his novel Days. James Lovegrove has very kindly given Starship Suffer a number of stories to get narrated. Recently... Mr. Lovegrove moved into the young adult field, writing a series of fantasy novels under a pseudonym. Narration idea is just first class. You know what I mean? This is one of them stories where you just want to put your headphones on and just drift off with this narration. What a fantastic narration. Comes from Nicola Seaton Clark. Nicola has worked professionally as an actress for over 15 years. During this time, she's worked for TV, film, radio, started a career as a jazz singer and later as a singer in a rock band. Her voiceover experience includes TV, radio advertising, singing jingles, film dubbing and training videos, corporate films, animation and interactive voice responses for telephone menus. She has extensive experience as a vocal coach specialising in South African, Australian and New Zealand accents. And actually, together with her husband, and her husband's called Peter, they've got set up this own company called Off's Time, which you can find at OFFS. T-I-M-M-E dot com. This is the business they've actually set up themselves, actually, which sources and provides native-speaking voice talents for TV and radio. And I gave, actually, Peter's got a story coming out as well by Neil Asher. So I'm very proud to have Nicola on, you know, the, doing this narration. It is just fine. Like I say, just listen to this. Give yourself the time and appreciate this, the kind of quality that's coming out here, both from James Lovegrove's story and Nicola Seton Clark's narration. Fine, excellent examples. Thank you very much, both of you. So the Starship Sova and her oral delight is very proud to present Wings by James Lovegrove. The bell rang, and suddenly the corridors and shafts of the school were filled with moving bodies and the classrooms, libraries, laboratories and gymnasia were left empty and echoing to the slamming of desk lids and doors. Dust and loose leaves of paper settled, even as the teachers began to shape their lips around the words, Class Dismissed. Through the building, the children flew with a great racketing roar, celebrating with their screams and whoops and yells the death of another school day. A dozen disparate streams of them converged in the main hallway, and when the hallway could no longer contain all these young bodies, all the enthusiasm made flesh, the main doors swung wide and spilled them out into the yard. There the children blinked and stood dazed for a moment in the sunshine, like prisoners released from long sentences in lightless dungeons. But then, 
Quickly adjusting to their newfound freedom, they fell to clasping hands and exchanging grins and sharing jokes and promising to meet up later that day or tomorrow or whenever, and dividing into pairs and knots of three or four and the odd solemn single. Up from the yard they rose on single down thrusts of their wings, and off they flew along the windy streets of Cloud Cap City, satchels in hand, shirt tails and skirt hems fluttering, blowing like dandelion seeds to all six corners of the compass. Amid all this fever to escape, As plodded along in his usual ungainly fashion. A few classmates patted him on the shoulder and said, See you, as they flew past. But As's excruciatingly slow progress meant that no one was going to stay beside him for long. It just wasn't possible. It took As over a minute to traverse a corridor or clamber up or down a shaft, using the metal rungs fitted into the walls especially for him. Whereas it took the rest of them a handful of seconds. The other children swooped around him like swifts, like swallows, while As was a beetle, struggling, bumbling, lumbering. The last few children were taking off from the yard when As finally emerged into the daylight. He watched them rise into the sky, wave to one another, and flit off in different directions. He waved too. On the off chance that one of them might happen to look back and see him and return the gesture, but it was useless. Their eyes were fixed on the horizon and home. Alone, and sunk deep in his own thoughts, as traipsed across the yard. Normally he would have caught the airbus and travelled home with the elders and the fledglings and all the other clipped wings, but when he came through the school gates, He found his brother Michael waiting for him on the landing platform in his corbeau. Michael was returning the admiring glances of a pair of girls who were wafting by on the other side of the street, but catching sight of As, he forgot about them and raised a hand and cried, Hey, little brother, hop aboard! As climbed into the passenger seat beside Michael, dumping his satchel between his feet. Michael hit a switch on the dashboard of the corbeau, and the blades began to rotate above their heads. Over the rising whine of the engine and the vip, vip, vip of chopped air, he shouted, Good day at school! As shrugged, So, so. Michael looked carefully at the little guy and saw the gloom in his face, sitting heavy there like cumulonimbus on a blue sky. He didn't ask what the matter was. He merely said, I've got an idea. Why don't we stop by the ice castle on the way home? I bet you anything there's a Sunday there with your name on it. Thanks. No, said As, buckling on his safety belt. Okay, why don't we pop over to the Aero Bowl then? I've got free passes. Come on, the Thunderhead Eagles are playing the Stratoville Shrikes. Oh. Oh? What does that mean, oh? The Shrikes, As. You love the Shrikes. No. It's all right, really. Thanks. I just want to go home. Michael frowned. Well, okay, if you say so, if you're sure. He glanced out of the cockpit to check the street was clear, then pushed down on the joystick. The autogyro sprang from the landing platform, soaring up into the sparkling air. The Corbeau, the latest model in the Airdyne 3 series, was the status symbol two-seater of the moment. Sleek, tapered, a giant's teardrop cast in bronze, every inch of the surface of its fuselage smooth and gleaming, 
from the nose cone with its ring of rivets to the scallop-grooved tail fins. And Michael flew it with the requisite recklessness, slipping and side-sliding through the air channels, descending suddenly, just as suddenly climbing, overtaking, undertaking, the aircraft responding to the tiniest nudges on the stick and pedals, as though it were an extension of its pilot, a mechanical extrapolation of Michael's own abilities. And had Az been in any kind of good mood, he would have been laughing uproariously as they nipped around the other traffic and whizzed past his schoolfellows at breakneck speed, leaving them standing just as they had left him standing earlier. But today, not even a fast ride in a classy piece of auto-engineering could lift his depression. If anything, it served to deepen it. They whisked down sunswept avenue, great cubes of apartment block blurring by on either side, then took a right onto Cirrus Street, then up onto Goshawk, and shortly after that the Corbeau was settling down onto the private landing platform that poked out like a rectangular tongue from their parents' front porch. As leapt out, and was about to make his way to the front door, when Michael grabbed him by the arm and turned him around with a gentle but forceful strength, bringing them face to face. "'Listen, little brother,' he said softly. As averted his gaze. "'I know it's not easy for you,' Michael continued, "'and I know that sometimes it must feel like the whole world's against you "'because of what you don't have or what you think you don't have. "'Just remember this. It doesn't matter. "'You're still our heirs, and one lousy pair of wings isn't going to change that. "'If I thought it would, I'd cut mine off and give them to you right now. "'You understand that, don't you?' "'As nodded dumbly, not looking up. "'Good.' Well, take it easy on yourself. Maybe we'll go down to the bowl at the weekend. How about that? Would you like that? As nodded again, and Michael let him go. The whine of the autogyro rose behind him as he wandered slowly up to the porch. Michael's catch you later was cut short by a slammed front door. Dear, his mother's voice from the kitchen, Azrael. She came out into the hallway, drying her hands on a dish towel. Was that Michael I heard just now? Isn't he going to stay for supper? As shook his head. I don't know. Some girl, I bet, said his mother, indulgent wrinkles multiplying around her eyes. Maybe, said As. Then, I'm going up to my room. To reach the upper story of the house, As had to use a contraption his father had built for him a space-consuming succession of cantilevered wooden steps that rose diagonally through an aperture in the ceiling. His parents used the steps, too, whenever he was around. As a rule, they made sure to walk as much as possible when he was in the house, out of respect to his feelings. His room was like any other twelve-year-old's room, save that the door went all the way down to the floor, another of his father's DIY adaptions. The carpet was strewn with clothing, books, pieces of a long-abandoned jigsaw, some small die-cast biplanes, and a larger-scale model of a corbeau which Michael had given him on his last birthday, saying it would do until Az was old enough to earn his pilot's license, at which point Michael would buy him the real thing. He dropped his satchel into the middle of all this debris and stretched out on his bed, flat on his back. Lying on his back, as reflected, was the one thing he could do that no one else could. Some compensation, yeah, right, what a talent. The kids at school were forever asking him to show how well he could lie on his back. He stared up at the ceiling for a long time, 
trying to think of nothing. At some point during the long, slow diminuendo of the afternoon, he fell asleep. And he dreamed. One morning, Az wakes up to find he's grown a fully-fledged pair of wings. He doesn't know how they got there. He doesn't dare ask why. He simply accepts. His parents are happy and amazed. His mother cries. His father thumbs some grit from his eye. They forgive Az. For what, they do not say, but it is enough for Az to be forgiven. He kisses them both and prepares to fly off to school under his own steam for the first time ever. Flying, he finds, is not so difficult. He has the instinct for it now, and now he has the means. A little practice, some plummeting and frantic fluttering, and he's on his way. Heads turn, and mouths gape in the schoolyard. A cry goes up, Look, look at that! Did you ever? Who'd have thought? As alights in the middle of the schoolyard, and his peers cluster around him, jabbering excitedly. They fire off a million questions at him. They ask him if they can touch his wings. He tells them they can. They touch them with reverential awe and care. It tickles. Word gets round, and before he knows it, As is a celebrity in school. He's clapped and cheered wherever he goes. When he glides down a shaft with his wings outstretched, every feather intricately splayed to catch the air, he descends into a hail of hurrahs. When he kites along a corridor, keeping pace with the rest of his class as they hurry from one lesson to the next, they grin and encourage him every flap of the way. During break time, Az is asked to join half a dozen impromptu games of balloon ball, and though he's never played before, has only ever watched from the sidelines, he soon gets the hang of it, and even scores a horizontal slide. The seal is put on his popularity when Mrs. Ragul interrupts Phys Ed to ask Az for a demonstration. The class goes outside, and Az soars and barrel rolls and loop the loops for their benefit. Mrs. Ragul tells him he is not just a good flyer, he is a great flyer. Then the rest of them join him in the air, and together, under Mrs. Ragul's approving eye, they pass a happy truant half-hour simply doing what they like best, wheeling and whirling and squealing and squalling like a flock of mad seagulls. All the time, Az is the centre of attention, the focus of everybody's admiration. After all, anyone who can make one of Mrs. Ragul's phys-ed torture sessions fun has to be some kind of hero. He woke up. He dared to touch his back, still wingless. He rolled disconsolately over onto his side to look out of the window at Cloudcap City, all laid out in neat rows and columns and tiers, up, down, left, right, reaching as high as the stratosphere and as low as the cloud top and as far as the horizon, each block suspended by means of six-way electromagnetic positional stabilizers to form a three-dimensional latticework of buildings, between and through and around which tiny figures and aircraft of all shapes and sizes were threading their way. Most of the buildings were cubic in shape, but they were oddities. The cylinder of the Freefall Dance Palace was one, the annular aerobowl another, the spike-spired maceball fantasy of the Cathedral of the Significant God, a notable third. The air being clear, and his eyes being sharp, as could make out the bird trawlers a mile below in the cloud top, casting their nets into the wilderness of white. He could also make out the sky mines that ringed the city, forming a circle of stability on which the whole meniscus of floating buildings depended. 
The sky mines looked like tulips balancing on lofty, delicately slender stems which pierced the cloud top and went all the way down to the ground, from where they sucked up the juices that kept the city running. Service elevators, like glass aphids, crawled up and down the stems. He lay there, watching the view, for he didn't know how long. It seemed like no time and all time had passed when his mother called up from below, summoning him down for supper. As clumped down to the kitchen, from which emanated smells which even his gloom-ridden brain recognised as mouth-watering. "'Go and call your father,' said his mother. "'Then you can lay the table.' As went out into the hallway again, walked along a little way, and stopped at the large trapdoor that led down to his father's workshop. He listened hard, and heard from below faint sounds of banging and talking, clonking and clanging. Construction. While a working man, Az's father had spent much of his spare time dabbling in home improvements, which were usually for Az's benefit, like the steps and all the doorways in the house. When his forty-year career as a maker and mender of clocks had finally wound down, however, he had turned his hand to invention, and had begun building a series of thises and thats and the others, gadgets he hoped one day to patent and sell by the million, devices intended to make everyone's lives that little bit easier. So far, not a single one had proved patent-feasible. A portable trouser press had made its mark in all the wrong ways. A clockwork toothbrush had been a gum-mangling disaster. A pair of self-sharpening scissors that had almost cost him a finger. But he went on making these things nonetheless, toiling away by the uncertain light of a gas lantern, in secret, in the strictest of privacy, hope springing eternal with the completion of every new invention, until that invention blew a gasket or slipped a cog or collapsed in a heap or simply failed to start. Then it was, oh well, back to the drawing board. With a sigh that contained neither defeat nor despair, it was almost as if Az's father wasn't really looking forward to the day one of his devices worked and was a success and made his fortune and meant that he never had to make anything else again. The old man was happy just to be in his workshop, out of harm's way, tinkering, occupying his hands and his time. Az called down, and the sounds of construction ceased, and his father's muffled voice came up. Yes? Supper. Coming. A moment later, his father bustled up into the kitchen. Give me a hand here, won't you, son? He turned his back, and Az helped him unzip and wrestle his way out of the plastic slipcovers he wore over his wings to protect them from dust and stray sparks. His father's plumage had greyed at the edges, was rough in patches like a fledgling's, and had gaps where pin feathers had fallen out and would never grow back again. But they were fine, proud wings all the same, and in excellent condition for a man his age. "'Outside, please,' said Azza's mother, referring to the dusty wing covers. Her husband obediently popped them out onto the back porch. "'I shudder to think of the state of that workshop,' she went on. "'Knee-deep in shavings and scrapings and wood chips and what have you.' Azza's father clasped a fist to his chest. I would rather die than have you clean in there. I wasn't offering, his wife replied. I was merely remarking. While Az finished laying the table, his father washed his hands in the sink. Drying them on a towel, he said, quietly as if it was no matter at all, Do you know, I really think I'm onto something this time. 
Az's mother, who'd heard this statement or statements pretty much like it a hundred times before, said without looking up from the stove, That's good, dear. Az said nothing. But when his father sat down at the table, there was a gleam in his eyes Az could not remember seeing there before, a light of excitement brightening the well-yellowed whites. No, I mean it, he said. I've been working on this particular project for some weeks now, and I think I'm close to cracking it. Eat, said Az's mother, placing laden plates in front of them. They ate. His parents, reckoning Az was not in a communicative mood, left him alone and chattered between themselves, chewing over trivialities and inconsequentialities, the way long-married couples do when the weighty subjects have all been thoroughly discussed, and all that remains is the nitty-gritty and the fine-tuning and the splitting of hairs. Finally, Az could bear it no longer and said, What? What, what? said his father. What is it? The something that you're on to, what? The gleam re-entered the old man's eyes. Never you mind, Az. Wait and see. By this time, Az's mother was intrigued too. Go on, Gabe, she said. Give us a clue. What, and ruin the suspense? Is it going to make us rich? Az asked. His father made a great show of considering the question. Well, in one sense, yes. In another sense, no. He grinned enigmatically. Wait and see. As waited several days, and still did not see. Every afternoon when he came home from school, he would stop quietly by the trapdoor and listen to the tink and bonk and clatter and whack-whack-whack of industry, and the tuneless humming with which his father often counterpointed the rhythm of his labours. The sound seemed no different from the sound his father usually made down there. They were infuriatingly ordinary. His attempts to extract from his father even the tiniest hint as to what was taking shape in the workshop were met with gleeful stonewalling. Endless questions could be asked over the dinner table only to be answered with a maybe or a could be or a simple not saying. Once, recalling that his father had recently bought in several sheets of copper, as asked whether these had some bearing on the mystery. But his father pointed out, rightly, that he was constantly buying and bringing in sheets of copper. It was, he said, the most tractable and obliging metal to work with. One evening, while flicking through a magazine, Az held up each page of advertising in turn and showed it to his father, asking, Is it like that? To which, in every instance, his father replied, Something like that, only completely different. Eventually, Az became so aggravated that he threw the magazine down and left the room, hearing his father chuckle merrily behind him. There was no question of secretly investigating the workshop, violating the privacy of his father's sanctum sanctorum. So, in the end, there was nothing for it but to wait and wonder. One good thing, though, came of this continuing mystery. Az was so busy thinking about what might be in the workshop that he forgot to dwell on his own problems. Teachers marked the disappearance of his depressive fits and were quietly pleased, although a tendency to daydream in class was noted in the normally diligent pupil. His classmates were for the most part indifferent to the change in his temperament, although a few of them did notice that Az no longer scowled so hard when he walked. His mind seemed to be elsewhere, on something outside himself. The more sensitive among them recognized this to be a healthy sign.
Eighteen days after his first announcement, Az's father made a second, even more impressive announcement. It came one supper time. Michael had dropped by on his way to pick up a girl called Raffaella and take her to a harp recital at the Cathedral of the Significant God. The family were halfway through the main course when Az's father tapped his wine glass with his fork, cleared his throat and said, A short speech. Everyone groaned. A very short speech. Just to say that this Sunday we'll see the unveiling of a device that is going to make us the happiest family alive. I want you to be there, Michael, if you can make it. This isn't another of your exploding specials, is it, Dad? said Michael. Like the self-heating coffee cup? It's something, said the old man, with an extravagant display of self-restraint, that is going to make us the happiest family alive. Michael turned to Az. We're going to be millionaires, he said with a confident wink. That night, Az hardly slept at all. It was ridiculous, he knew, to get all excited over a, a dumb invention of his father's that might not even work. But there it was. His father's enthusiasm was infectious. And so Az lay awake, trying to imagine what form the device would take, what use it could be put to, how big it would be, how practical. And he ached for Saturday to come, so that he could see which if any of his suppositions turned out to be correct. The day of the unveiling arrived, and Az and his mother watched Michael and the old man haul the device up from the workshop and carry it out onto the landing platform. The device was covered by a tarpaulin, so that all anyone could say about it was that it was twelve feet long, thin at either end, bulky in the middle, and angular all over. As thought of the dinosaur skeleton in the Museum of Ancient Artifacts. Well, said Az's mother, gift-wrapping her impatience in a laugh. One moment, said his father. First, a short speech. As before, the family groaned, as they were supposed to. Pretending not to notice, Az's father ruffled his wings and grasped his lapel like a politician. Once, he began... Long ago we were not airborne but groundling, and we lived an earthbound life, circumscribed on all sides by natural boundaries, mountains, rivers, seas. Since then the race has moved onwards and upwards, and now we live lives as close to perfection as it is possible to get. We are paragons, living embodiments of all that the groundlings aspired to. This is our heritage and our privilege a privilege that should not be denied to anyone, least of all to flesh of my flesh. Here, he looked straight at Az, and suddenly everyone except Az had a pretty good idea what lay beneath the tarpaulin. There might have been more to the speech, but Az's father sensed that the game was up, and like any good showman, he knew he should not let the audience get ahead of him. So, with a grand flourish, he swept back the tarpaulin, revealing his creation to the world. Four faces were reflected in a relief mosaic of burnished copper. Three of them gawped, wide-eyed. The fourth grinned with pride. Finally, someone spoke. It was Az's mother. Wings? she exclaimed, the word tailing up into a question. Wings! her husband confirmed, bringing the word back into land. And wings they were, larger than life-size, correct in every detail, lovingly crafted in beaten copper, 
a pair of metal, mechanical wings. Every feather was there, perfect down to the fine comb teeth of its filaments, and pinned into place with a free-floating bolt. Every joint, too, from the ball and sockets at the base of the armatures to the hinges at the elbows. And a complex system of pulleys and wires connected the ensemble to a leather harness which was just the right shape and just the right size for the torso of a boy of twelve. Come on, then, said Az's father, taking Az by the shoulder. Let's try them on, shall we? Michael stepped forward to help, and together he and the old man loaded the wings onto Az's back and tightened the straps of the harness around his chest. Az submitted passively to the fitting, not knowing what to think, not really thinking anything. The wings were very heavy, and when his father and Michael let go, he teetered and would have overbalanced if Michael had not caught and steadied him. Az barely listened as his father explained how the wings worked. You see, they're designed to take the action of the muscles in your shoulders and translate it into wing beats, so you'll simply be employing the natural abilities God gave you. You may have some trouble adjusting to them at first, but that's only to be expected. There's no reason why instinct shouldn't take over almost straight away. Trust me, Az, you'll be up and soaring in no time. Bookended by Michael and his father, Az staggered to the edge of the landing platform the wings making a soft, shimmering clatter with each step as hundreds of copper feathers shook against one another. He peered down. The rippled surface of the cloud top was awfully far below. The bird trawlers plying their trade down there looked as tiny as gnats. He glanced back over his shoulder. At first he could see nothing but copper wing, but he dropped his shoulder slightly and the wing flattened out, and then he could see his mother. There were tears in her eyes. Go on, she said to him, smiling bravely. Don't be scared, you'll be fine. But he wasn't scared. He was embarrassed. The clench of his jaw wasn't one of determination, but one of humiliation. He felt clumsier than ever, burdened by these huge metal prostheses. He felt neither airborne nor grounding, but a, a horrid amalgamation of the two, a joke, a parody. What would they think of him at school when he turned up on Monday morning strapped into this ugly, clattering copper contraption? I don't think I can go through with this, he said. Nonsense, said his father, mistaking the tremor in Az's voice for fear. Michael and I will make sure you're all right, won't we, Michael? Whatever happens, you won't come to any harm. Trust us. Will you at least hold on to me? As implored. The only way to learn is the way I learned, said Michael. The way we all learn. What way is that? said As doubtfully. The hard way, said Michael. And with a grin that was devoid of malice, and yet still wicked, he grabbed As's arm. As's father on the other side did the same, and together, chanting, One, two, three! They heaved As out over the edge, and into space, and let go. There was a moment of sheer disbelief, followed by a moment of sheer terror. Then all that was lost in the sickening uprush of falling. The weight of the wings yanked as head over heels onto his back, and down he went in a wind-shivered rattle of metal. Down he plummeted, making no attempt to right himself or flap the wings, unable even to entertain the notion of saving himself. Down in a state of dreamlike apathy, 
with no thought except that he was going to die. Hypnotically down, past building after building, past windows and doorways, past light aircraft and happy citizens out for a Saturday morning glide, down, 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 with no hope of rescue and no desire for it either. Down without a gasp or a scream, for an elastic stretch of second, the platform above receding, the house and all the houses around it shrinking, the sky growing smaller and filling up with more and more city. Down towards the cloud top and the ground from where the airborne race once sprang and which now lay forever hidden. There was a tentative knock at the door. Can I come in? Sure, Dad. As glanced up from the book he was reading, an adventure story about sky pirates as his father entered the room. The old man's head was contritely bowed, and his wings drooped so low their tips were almost touching the floor. The look of shame that hung on the old man's face was so comical as could hardly fail to smile. His father gestured at the edge of the bed. May I? As nodded. The old man sat down. There was a long silence while he deliberated over his next move. Then he reached out and laid one hand on Az's leg. He patted the leg, the action affectionate yet mechanical. It was clear he had several things to say, but no idea in what order to say them. Az helped him out. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. My feelings? By not trying. Oh, well, well, I wouldn't say my feelings were hurt, exactly. I was a little... Disappointed? No. No, not even that. I did hope... Well, it doesn't matter now. How I feel doesn't matter. It's how you feel that matters. I feel fine. Honestly. The doctor said there may be some delayed shock. I feel absolutely fine, Dad. Guilty, though. Guilty? For letting you down. You didn't let me down, As, said his father with an exasperated laugh. How can I get that into your thick skull? I don't mind. Really, I don't. It's, it's enough for me that you're alive and well. Well, I think I did. I mean, the wings would have worked. Almost certainly. Definitely. If I'd tried. I just didn't try. I, I didn't want to try. Oh, said his father. For the sake of his own conscience, it was what he had been hoping to hear. Well, anyway, you'll be pleased to learn that I've taken the damn things along to the scrapyard. Never again. But you are going to carry on with your inventions. As his father frowned. Perhaps. The fun's sort of gone out of it. But what about making your million? It's just a dream... Dreams are important. As, said his father, then paused. When your mother was pregnant with you, the doctors suggested she... she shouldn't have you. Health reasons. She wasn't so young anymore. But she was prepared to take the risk, quite determined, as a matter of fact. And because she was, I was too. We both wanted you more than we've ever wanted anything. No question about it. And when you came, we couldn't have been happier. We loved you the instant we set eyes on you. You were different, but that only made you special. His father looked deep inside himself.
Even so, it hasn't always been easy. You understand, for, for any of us, the looks we sometimes get, that mixture of compassion and disappointment, like we've somehow let the whole race down. Sometimes, anyway, what I'm saying is, I was wrong to try and make you the same as everyone else. I'd convinced myself I was doing it for you, but of course I was just doing it for myself. And now I can't help thinking what would have happened if Michael hadn't been so quick off the mark. If he hadn't caught you when he did. But he did, and I'm fine. It just wasn't meant to be, Dad. That's all there is to it. Please believe me when I say that I had your best interests at heart. It simply never occurred to me. That I just assumed that to fly must be your dream, your greatest, wildest dream. Oh, but it is, Dad, it is. I dream about having wings all the time. The thing is, I've got so used to the fact that it's never going to happen, it doesn't bother me so much anymore. Sometimes it's better to have a dream and not have it fulfilled than make do with something that's like your dream but not quite as good. Say I'm forgiven anyway. You're forgiven anyway. Thank you. The old man thought about tousling his son's hair but checked himself. That was something you did to little children, to boys. Instead, he patted Az's leg one more time and left the room. Az shut his book and turned over to look out of the window. Cloud Cap City, his home, lay suspended in the bright afternoon sunshine, shadowless and huge, its interstices busy with traffic, thriving with life. It pleased Az to think that even if only for a handful of seconds, he had plunged through that city unaided, unsupported. That he had had a taste of flight, however brief and unwelcome. It filled him with a, a weird kind of serenity. In this world, he would always be a floor-bound, wingless freak. There was no changing that. But in his dreams? In his dreams... He would always be able to fly. There you go. Now, go on. I don't, don't have to, you know, that was just fantastic. Amazing narration and an amazing story. Nicola, thank you so much. Everyone, do pop over. I'll put a link on the site. You know, I do pop over to their site. It is, you know, there's just a host of narrators there that do an amazing job. So do pop over there and have a look. And James Lovegrove, thank you so much, James. It really is appreciated. Like I say, I've got some more stories by James, so excellent. Thank you so much. Next we come on to fiction crawler Matthew Sanborn-Smith. And Matthew is, guess, one of the first guests on the new Sofa Notes. Dying to get Matthew on just to have a chat with him. Do you know what I mean? I love his fiction crawler. I just think that's fantastic. And you know what I mean? There was no competition. I had to get Matt on for show number one. So, Matt... Fiction Crawler. Any stories? Okay, guys, I have to make this quick. I don't have a lot of time this go-around. I'm tearing out my ear and nose hair, reading long, long stories that leave me cold. Luckily, fellow Sophonaut church-age Tucker showed me the light. Go for flash fiction, says he. Aw, yeah, that's it. These sites I'll tell you about aren't strictly genre fiction, but flash fiction seems to draw genre writers like kids draw cooties, and there is a lot of it to be had. You're like me. I know you've got a life to live. You can't loll around all day reading short stories like some decadent Etruscan king. You've got to start supper. Then check out Flashscribe.net. 
The stories here run from 100 words to 1,100 words on the outside. Some of the stories on Flashscribe seem to have less than satisfactory resolutions. This is because the folks at Flashscribe encouraged their writers to produce series of connected flash fiction stories. Recommended is a tale called Colonists by Barry Napier. It's horror, and I generally don't go for horror, but here's the thing about Flash. If you don't like the ride, it'll be over at the next corner anyway, so just hang on for a second. I know you've got to pee, but we're almost there. And so I hung, and then the last line got me, and it turned from a blah story to a cool story like that. Like like that. Did you hear that? Just like that. And if you don't get the last line, as some outside of the States may not, go look it up. You're online anyway, and that's what online is for, to solve all of your problems as they come to you. All right, I took too long with that one. Here's one that's slightly shorter, with stories of up to only 1,000 words. EverydayWeirdness.com, edited by N.E. Lilly, the mind behind Thaumatrope and SpaceWesterns.com. Everyday Weirdness, as the name suggests, gives you a new piece of weird on a daily basis. There you'll find flash fiction, poetry, art, music, and whatever else they can get their hands on. Not only do they publish hot young bucks like myself, but also Lovecraft and Howard and Art by Bosch. You can navigate the crappy old linear way or hit the random weirdness link and teleport through the calendar like some uh, calendar teleporting son of a gun. Homecoming by Jessica Melusine is a great place to start. Sister's back, and she's been in a very strange place these past two years. Faster, faster, faster. BrainHarvestMag.com. Okay, here's a faster site and a great name as well. Their stories run up to only 750 words. BrainHarvest is one of the newer kids in the projects, having just started on March 1st. Only four stories and a book review at the time of this writing. It claims to be an almanac of badass speculative fiction. You go see for yourself. Try Prairie Star by Cat Rambo in which a dry-minded songwriter finds inspiration in the sky. There isn't anything speculative about this particular story, to be honest, but I liked it. This is another one of those last-line things that I think works especially well for Flash. You're reading, you're reading, you're almost done reading, you're reading, and then all of a sudden everything gets turned on its head. You almost judge some of these stories by their last line. At least I do. In a longer work with a greater investment of time required, the reader might feel cheated. But there's not time to feel cheated here. It's on to the next story and then the next. Flash fiction is literary popcorn. Tasted and done before you can think, this needs ketchup, so stick your hand back down in that bag and have some more. Reach all the way down to the southern hemisphere where the crafty Australians have discovered ways not to fall off of the bottom of the world. There you'll see Antipodian SF, found at antisf.com.au. Now we're really trucking. Stories no longer than 500 words each. Antipodian SF features 10 pieces of flash fiction each month, as well as reviews and editorial and some occasional poetry. It's free. It's fast. You have no excuse. Go read the icy cool story titled They Called Her Larry, written by Steve Duffy. When the Buddhists take over, and they will, my brothers and sisters, we'll have to pay for our earlier incarnations, fat and sassy good times. You say, I don't have time for that. Supper's burning, and I want a good piece of speculative fiction on which to reflect during my dash from the computer to the oven. All right, here's three Twitter fiction sites in quick succession. Bing, bang, boom. Get you a Twitter account, then seek out the following. Twitter.com slash Thaumatrope, the original TwitFic magazine. Twitter.com Outshine, positive science fiction shorts edited by Sophonot Yetzi DeVries. Twitter.com slash Nanoism, the baby of the bunch, which hopefully will be up and running by the time you hear these well-spoken and sultry words. 
All of the stories you'll find there are a maximum of 140 characters long. We're talking 20 to 25 words each. Still too long. Look, you say, I've got things I've got to do. My house is on fire, and I need to read some fine quality fiction before I grab my kids and dive out the window. Fair enough. How's about sixwordstories.net? The name says it all. There are all sorts of stories here, but if you scroll to the bottom, you'll see subject links, and there is a clicky called sci-fi. I'm guessing that I can't read whole stories here due to copyright, but I can read about a third of some of the stories to you. Here's one, Moo Translator. Here's another, Court Denies. And who can forget the classic tale that begins, Inside the. If that doesn't leave you wanting more, I don't know what sort of medication you've been dipped in. A quick piece of full disclosure, my work has appeared at Everyday Weirdness, Antipodian SF, and Thaumatrope, so if stories I mentioned aren't enough to get you to lift a couple of fingers to the keyboard, then maybe seeking out my genius is. I didn't link to my stuff, you've got the internet, go use it. Haven't we already had this one-sided conversation? I've already said too much. That's it for me, it's a short one, I know, but as I may have mentioned, I'm in a hurry. Don't forget, copyright for this bit is Mr. Matthew Sanborn Smith, so please, no pinchy-pinchy, grabby-grabby, steely-steely, takey-takey, wakey-wakey, eggs and bakey. There you go. There you go, 100 mile hour, go, 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 Matt, thank you so much. Like I say, I'm dying to get you on Fiction fiction Crawl. I'm dying to get you on Sofa North. It'll be a, a great time. I'm looking forward to it so much. So, that's it. Starship Sofa's Oral Delights put to bed. Like I say, I hope you have enjoyed it. It has been fantastic. Like they say, both narrations, you know, both Kate Bakers and Nicholas, fantastic. You know what I mean? Starship Sofa is reaching some pinnacles there with the kind of the work it's putting out. I am chuffed to bits to be a part of this. Fantastic. If you want to be a part of it, you know, donations, that is, I know that sounds weird, that is just helping. Do you know what I mean? Make this what it is today, keeping it going. They are just amazing. And it's all been sorted out there now, so the new sanatorium feed is up and running. The shows are coming out. If you want to, pop over there and £2.50, just subscribe, you know, a goodwill gesture, £2.50 a month. And it's just, it's cementing what the foundations, what Starship Sofa is all about, and it's really appreciated. If you don't want to get locked in, <laughs> locked in and tied into me and my and the Sofa's account, one-off donation. Do you know what I mean? It would be fantastic. And because the whole Starship Sofa is all nice, new, shiny, spit and polished, look out for a, pr- a promotion I'm going to do as well. In next, I'll give another, next week I'll, I'll mention a little bit more, but coming up for two weeks' time, some or, or within like a two-week time period, the, sof- the sanatorium show is going to be open to anybody that donates any amount. So I'll I'll like I say I'll mention it next next week's show and I'll give some dates and then there's going to be like a two week window where the san- if you want to listen to the sanatorium show and if you donate and you'll get in and you'll get the feeds you get them for life do you know is <laughs> that a good thing or a bad thing but that's it you'll get you know so no matter what you donate donate a pound you'll get in with this promotion you'll get the sanatorium shows all the time. Donate a bit more, mind you, because if you donate a pound, PayPal gets about 40 or 50 pence. So, that is promotion coming soon. Do look out for it. Until next week, or should I say, until the weekend, when the Sofa North Show will air for the very first time, something I am very proud to do. Do join me over there, or join me next week on Oral Delights. Until then, good night from me. Heroes.
survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Sofa.